you have a Bible with you, would you turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 24? If you don't have one with you, you'll probably find them in the racks around you. If you don't own a Bible, I'd um, love to give you one. We have free Bibles here. And in the back, on the table in the back, there's Bibles that are wrapped in, in purple gift wrap. And yes, they are free. Had an individual last night who wondered if they were really free and, and didn't believe it, thought he had to buy it and pay for it, and then kept questioning, no, they're, they're really free. So hear me, they're really free. Um, we want you to have a copy of God's Word. Most important thing that you can own. Most important thing that you can hold in your hand, a copy of God's Word. But if you don't have a Bible or you don't have one available around you, maybe you've got one on your phone or on your iPad this morning, or you can watch up on the screen. You'll be able to see along that way. Uh, before we get into the text, though, I'd love to pray with you. Would you join me in that? Father, we come before you recognizing that what we, were, uh, what we are about to do uh, would have absolutely no meaning whatsoever if it wasn't for the presence of your Holy Spirit. So, Father, we would ask for the same Holy Spirit who illuminated this text to the mind of individuals over thousands of years when you caused this to be written down, that you would allow the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and guide. And we know that we don't even have to ask you to allow it because you've said the Holy Spirit is our teacher. We just ask for free reign in this place, that your Holy Spirit would permeate every heart, that you would cause us to see things we cannot see on our own. Stir us, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God is the uncreated creator. Allow that to settle into your mind for just a minute. God is the uncreated creator, meaning he exists by himself, for himself, self-sustaining. There is no one beyond him. No one created God. Therefore, he can say, I am that I am. The name that Moses asked him, what should I call you when he was on Mount Sinai? God said, you will know me by this name. I am, that is the name you shall know me by. I am that I am. Moses said, well, what should I tell the people whom you are? You can tell them I am who I am. Jesus took that same name and began using it for himself in the New Testament. He used it in expanded metaphors by describing his relationship to us by saying things like this, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Or this one that really blew people out of the water, before Abraham was, I am. Now at that, the individuals who heard him say that wanted to kill him, so they picked up stones to throw them at him, and he disappeared from their midst because they understood exactly what he was saying, that he was claiming to be God. Now, if that one is not big enough for you, here's a really big one that Jesus used as he was talking to the sisters of Lazarus, who he was about to raise from the dead. He said in John, very specifically, 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Do you know that only one has ever dared to declare that? I couldn't say that. You couldn't say that. We are not the resurrection and the life. We know resurrection because of his resurrection. But only one could dare to say, anyone who dies, they believe in me, they're going to live. Only one could say that because only one is God. 
The, fr- the phrase, the resurrection that Jesus uses there is what we want to bear down on this morning. Did you know, perhaps this will be interesting to you, that the resurrection itself is one thing that you'll find amazingly omitted from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of the Gospels omit the resurrection. And by that I mean this, no one was there to see it. Everyone saw Jesus on the cross. Everyone saw the dead body. Everyone saw him wrapped in white linen. They all saw him be put in the tomb. But on resurrection morning, no one was in the tomb to see how it happened. No one got to witness that. That it happened is obvious. That's why we gather this morning to declare it. It's the reason that we're here. But in order to understand it, how it happened, why it happened, it's absolutely inexplicable. It's known only to God. To grasp it, though, to grasp why we just sang the way that we sang, the significance of it, we have to go into a God conversation, a conversation in which God himself spoke about death and resurrection. And that's why I'm taking you to Luke 24 this morning, because God alone can shine light on what we don't understand. What you're about to see, perhaps you've never seen before, it is a beautiful story. Matter of fact, theologians and non-theologians call it a literary jewel because of the way it takes you through the height and the lows of what people were experiencing on Resurrection Sunday. So let's go to Luke 24. It says this in verse 13, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place. So that very same day in verse 13, when it's saying that, means the day that the tomb was discovered empty. They're going home because they think it's over. As far as they're concerned, all their hopes, everything that had been attached to what they believed Jesus could be is absolutely shattered. They have no understanding of what actually took place. They've heard reports that the tomb is empty. They've heard reports that Jesus is alive, but clearly as you read this story, they do not believe. So they're sad and they're confused. How could they have been so wrong? The background for these two individuals is this. They're not part of the 11 disciples. They're two obscure individuals that are lost to the history of time. We don't know a lot about them. They're traveling down this dusty road They are not part of the 11. By that, I mean the 11 disciples because Judas is dead at this point. Judas has already gone out and hung himself. The 11 remain, the 11 disciples, but they're not part of them. However, you'll see at the end of the story, they go running back to the disciples in Jerusalem to talk to them. We're told in verse 13, they're on their way to this village named Emmaus, specifically this very obscure village. It's even lost to time itself. No one knows where it's at today. We just know it's seven miles outside of Jerusalem. We're told in verse 14, they're talking with each other. What are they talking about? All these things, it says. Well, probably what we started talking about last week, Palm Sunday, with Jesus triumphantly riding into Jerusalem. People are throwing palm branches in front of them, literally taking their coats off their back, throwing them on the ground, Jesus walking over them because they're receiving him as king. And now they're left confused. How can it be? One day, on Monday, he's exalted as king. On Friday, he's executed like a common criminal. Do you, do you remember the sense, if, if you're more than 14 years of age, perhaps you, perhaps you remember this. Do you remember the sense of awe and shock that you had 
14 years ago in September 2001. We call it 9-11. Do you remember that sense of unbelievability of what you were seeing in front of your eyes? Take that same sense of shock and transfer it over to these individuals who had put all their hope in Jesus, all their expectations. No wonder they're confused. This is outright bizarre. They're still stunned. They're still shocked. Now, they can discuss the situation for days, and they're never going to arrive at an answer. They're never going to understand what has happened. What they need is a fresh understanding of God's Word. And that's what God's about to do with them. Verse 15 says this, While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Now, would you design things that way? If you were resurrected from the dead, and let's, let's, we'll let you be Jesus for a minute, okay? Just, just for a minute, though. You get to be Jesus for a minute. Would you design that? It's Resurrection Sunday. Would you go find two obscure individuals who are lost to history of time and who are traveling down a dusty road to a village no one knows where it's at today? See, if it's me, if, if Mark Crane gets to be Jesus for a minute, I'm going to Pilate's palace. I'm going there and saying, see, I told you I am truth. I'm showing up at the Supreme Court. I think you'd do the same thing. See, we're, we're us. We would do things to say, see, I told you so. But not Jesus. Jesus cares about the simplest things. He cares about these details. And so you find him showing up, talking to these individuals, saddles right up alongside them to listen to this animated conversation. Everybody walked. It's the first century. They walked wherever they went. It wasn't uncommon for an individual to jump into the midst of a conversation, even if it was a stranger and you didn't know them. That's exactly what you see him doing here. Here's what's remarkable to me, that he's not dazzling like the angels. He's not blazing in fire. They don't fall on their knees when they see him. They don't pass out like the guards at the tomb. He's looking human-like. Go forward with me. Verse 16, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. See, Jesus is in resurrection form, glorified, yet he's not an alien. He doesn't look weird to them. They're not surprised by his appearance. Here's an insight for you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you enter into heaven one day, you're not going to look weird. Scripture says that when we see him, we will be like him. We are made like him, human form. It's just that we will be without our fallenness, all of our imperfections gone. So Jesus is like that. They see him. There's something really human here, but they're prevented from recognizing who he really is. Jesus' physical appearance is altered in some way. Mary saw him. She thought he was a gardener. Other individuals saw him. They didn't know who he was. But believe me, church, he can turn it on when he wants to. You read the book of Revelation? You ever read Revelation? Revelation, it says he's as bright as the noonday sun. You can't even look upon him. He's so bright. But he also can tone it down. And he's toning it down here. They see him as a man. Here's why that's significant. This lack of recognition allows Jesus to do something. It allows him to teach. Now you might think, well, that seems so strange. Why would, on Resurrection Sunday, it's the afternoon, why would he be hanging out with these two individuals to teach them? And matter of fact, the story goes on for a couple hours. He walks with them for a long journey, the seven-mile journey. This lack of recognition allows him to teach because of this reason. There's a really important implication here. There is power 
in explaining God's word to people who are going through hard times. This is important for you to hear, especially if you're a Christ follower. You have individuals in your life who are going through hard times, can't make sense of the world, can't make sense of their circumstances. Help them to understand the meaning of God's word, God's activity, how he rules and reigns. That's what you see Jesus doing for them. Go forward with me, verse 17. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. If I could make a brake sound, I'd make the sound of screeching brakes right now. They hit the brakes literally. They stood still and stopped in their tracks and then began looking gloomy. Think of the face that you had last night when MSU lost the game. Okay, <laughs> Transfer that gloomy face over to these individuals. That's what Scripture says. The word sad is they've got this Greek word, this gloomy face. They cannot believe in this moment that someone has not heard. How, how is it possible that you could be in the Jerusalem area and not know what has gone on here? So they're not only heartbroken, now they're shocked at his question. Next verse, verse 18. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Seriously? Have you not been reading the headlines? Is your smartphone not working? Don't you see what's going on here? How could you be from this area and not know? Paul said that these things were not done in the shadows. Matter of fact, Acts 26, 26, Paul's talking to King Agrippa, ruler of the land at that time, and he said, King, you need to know these things were not done in a corner. Obviously, it's been known to everyone. Well, these individuals recognize that. So what they conclude is Jesus is just another tourist. I, I think the reason you have a name here in that passage, the name Cleopas, very likely he's the source to Dr. Luke when Luke wrote all this down. This individual had this eyewitness account, this first-hand experience. And I know this for sure, Cleopas had to have told this story every day of his life from this day forward. Anybody who would listen, he had to let them know what he has experienced. Let's see what Jesus does next. Verse 19, and he, meaning Jesus, said to them, what things? I love that. <laughs> God's saying, tell me about God. Tell me about what's going on here. Now, Jesus obviously knows, right? So what's going on here? Why has he drawn them out this way? He wants them to articulate. He wants them to say in their own language all that's happened. He's the heart that's all have happened. He, he knows it. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's surfacing the condition of their heart. They're going to speak to what they really believe, what's really going on inside. Do you know that the best learning takes place when a learner has a need to know, they have a need to know. They're 9-11 type shocked. They can't understand. They can't put the pieces together. So let's watch what happens in their response. Verse 19, part B. And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who is a prophet in mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death, and crucified him. When you see them say in verse 19, who was a prophet, understand that the term prophet is not invalid. It's just incomplete. They see him now as a prophet because they believe he's dead and gone. So don't see it negatively. See it positively. Islam sees Jesus as a great prophet, 
but they don't understand fully who he is. These individuals are the same way. They see Jesus as a great prophet. They just don't see him complete, that he's more than a prophet. So they go on to say, verse 19, he's mighty in power, mighty in word, the likes of which the world has never seen. People talked about Jesus when he was walking around by saying things like, no one has ever spoken like this. Who can do the things that he's done? Surely God is among us. They were amazed by his presence, but they didn't see the complete picture. See, people in the first century are just like people today in 2015. They can't see completely. There's a blindness going on. They're blind to the complete message of the Bible. Let's go forward to verse 21. But we, the individuals are speaking again to Jesus, we were hoping, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. We were hoping. We put all of our eggs in his Easter basket. See, the Jews expected one particular thing. They expected one coming, not two comings, not a first coming and a second coming. They expected one coming of a Messiah. Common to believe in the first century that there would be a Messiah. Everything in the Old Testament led up to it, that there would be a deliverer coming. They thought that the one that would be coming would be coming to restore Israel to its position as a world power, preeminent in authority and rulership that Rome would never again enter their borders when the Messiah came. We were hoping that he would be the one to redeem Israel. See, they're seeing Messiah as a political liberator. The, the only Greek word I'm going to use for you this morning is this word, elpizo, and, and you'll see it on the screen. This particular word has a connotation behind the concept of hope. When they say hope, they mean we put all our expectations on him. And it didn't come to be. We put all our confidence in him. And their hope has been shattered. Why? Because they set their focus on man's expectations. What man wanted him to be on man's agenda. So here's what's really clear as you're looking at this text. They're hopeless because God didn't do what they wanted God to do. You ever been there? You ever been in that place where you've got expectations of God and he didn't do what you wanted him to do? You tell God what you want, when you want it, how you want it to happen, and it doesn't happen. And you're left wondering about the relationship. Is this like real or not? Is this legitimate? Do I actually walk with God? How could these things be? See, that's human nature. Human nature is to think, well, God didn't come through for me, so I begin wondering about everything that's going on. Here's the bigger issue that's going on, the real base problem. They didn't believe God's Word. And here's where they totally miss it. God has an agenda, and it's bigger than man's agenda. God has an agenda that is far beyond man's agenda. So here's what I see the failure. To get what they wanted... Jesus would have become a political leader. If they would have gotten their way, they would have settled for something so minuscule as a political victory. God says, my ways are not your ways. 
My thoughts are not your thoughts. As far as the heaven is above the earth, so far are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. I can do things exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you ask or imagine. So they're thinking so small when they're thinking he's going to liberate Israel. Now this is true in 2015 today. It's true of the society that we live in. Jesus fits the plan. Jesus is totally cool. Jesus fits the plan if he does things by our definition, if God fits our design. But when his ways, according to his word, run counterculture, it blows society out of water. They don't know what to do with it when they begin seeing God's word saying things differently than what society says. And in that, when that happens, watch out because people don't understand God's word fully. Let me give you an example. They use the word redeem. Did you notice that? They use the word that we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Well, the word redeem is associated with the slave market. They're leaning back into something that was very common in the first century. Individuals would go to the slave block, and on the auction block would be an individual. They would identify and say, I want to own that one for my household. Well, they went with pockets loaded with money because they intended to redeem a particular slave, meaning they knew there was a price to be paid. If they're using this word, it's a common word in the first century, they understood there was some kind of a price to be paid to bring Israel back to God. What they failed to grasp is the price for forgiveness required God's own son. So what should be a day of hope has become a day of hope extinguished. And they can't put the pieces together. Did you notice the little detail at the end where he said, besides, it's, it's the third day since all these things happened? Here, here's just a little insight for you. In the first century, it was common among the Jews to believe that a spirit, once it departed the body, hung around the body for about three days. And after the third day, there's no hope for that body to be resurrected again. There's that component going on Plus the fact that Jesus said, in the third day, I'm going to rise. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. They've heard these things from Jesus, and they're saying, it's the third day. It's late in the third day. It's afternoon, and he hasn't shown up. What you're seeing here is confirmation of their unbelief. They don't believe that Jesus was resurrected from the tomb Now, the longer Cleopas talks, the more he indicts himself. And you get to the point where you want to say, dude, just stop talking. Watch with me in verse 22. Look at what he he shows here. Verse 22, but also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. What more evidence could you want, Cleopas? What are you looking for? The visions of angels? We've already been told in the other stories that there was this massive earthquake in Jerusalem at the morning that Jesus was resurrected. The tomb was split open. Individuals saw that the tomb was empty. They got the witnesses here. Here's what they're trying to press. Notice it right there at the very end, the last sentence. They're trying to press him they did not see. We didn't find him. See, for these individuals, common among individuals today, the empty tomb without the appearance of Jesus is inadequate. There's no faith there. 
what you should be picking up at this point is the disciples, the followers of Jesus in the first century, are not predisposed to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. If anything, they were on the opposite side. They couldn't see it. It wasn't possible for them to understand it. Now, the women on the other side, they get a gold star. I'm going to put it right in the middle of their forehead because they're absolutely shocked by the things that they saw. They go to the tomb and they come running away absolutely frightened because of the encounter that they had. They had kind of like an Isaiah experience where Isaiah saw God and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. My eyes have seen the King of glory. Well, they absolutely are shocked in this moment and they go running back to the disciples. But these two are just like the eleven. Him, they did not see. So for us, they just clearly articulated the dilemma. This is absolutely perfect. They're, They're a bunch of doubting Thomases, right? This is what you're seeing here. They're doubting Thomases. So they need to understand reality. They need to know this is the plan. It's not a violation of the plan. This is God's plan. Verse 25, And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. I have a list of things I never want to hear God say. That one's on the list. You never want to hear God say, you foolish man, you are slow to believe. You never want to hear God say that to you. He's literally calling them out. Why? Because they're responsible. They're responsible for knowing Scripture. This may make you hesitate about wanting to pick up a Bible this morning if you need a free Bible, if you don't own a Bible. This next statement may make you pause. If you own a Bible, if you have a Bible, you are accountable to know what it teaches, church. You're accountable to know what's inside there. That's what God is saying. You're slow to believe what the prophets have written. Where have the prophets written? The prophets have written in the Bible. The rebuke is really gracious he immediately is going to take them on a tour of the Old Testament, helping them to see and make them understand. But here's what I want you to see. With hearts that are crushed, they're broken, what does God do? God takes them to his word to give them proper perspective. He says to them in verse 25, you're slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. God's prophets have spoken in the Bible. So here's what God is saying. My word is clear. It's not ambiguous. You can absolutely understand. So the key word there is all. All that the prophets have written. See, it's not that they don't believe the Bible. The problem is they have selective learning. Selective learning about the things they don't understand. See, they're not rejecting the Bible. They just don't accept the things that they can't grasp. How do you miss things like Isaiah 53? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquity. Or what about what David wrote in Psalm 19? My bones are revealed, they're shaken. David describes in Psalm a crucifixion 1,000 years before crucifixion was even invented. The prophets writing about this moment. How do you miss that? Well, Jesus is calling them out saying, you're just not accepting my word because you can't grasp it. They don't accept what they can't grasp. Now, we're not told specifically where in the Old Testament he takes them to. We just get a a brief picture here, but it says this in verse 26. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? I need you to know that that verse devastated me this week. 
I'm, I'm working through this passage, and I realized how long it's been since I thought about the suffering of Jesus. So he asked the question, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer, to endure all that we know that he went through? See, here's the truth, church. Jesus didn't have to come. It's not like, it's not like God the Father said to God the Son, you've got to go do this. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I give it willingly. God the Son condescended to come to earth because of how great our need is. So put that in context. He gave up all the glories of heaven because of how messed up we are. How horrible is the state of fallen man that it's necessary for the compensation to be the king of glory. 1827, Charles Simeon said it this way. Love you to see his quote. Inexpressibly dreadful is the guilt which requires God's only son to compensate for it. It, it, That's a 200-year-old way of saying, how sick are we? The, The sin is a reality, right? It's in our society. It's among all of us. We recognize. Nobody has to tell us that this is not like a news flash. We are people who have sinned because we're fallen. So Jesus, as a result of recognizing the fallenness, but the promise of the Redeemer takes him on this Old Testament tour. I can't go through it the way I'd love to this morning, but just let me show you briefly. Verse 27, he says, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Totally jealous. I'm jealous with a capital J. There's a seven-mile journey I would sign up for. How about you? Would you like to take that walk with Jesus? To have him walk with you for about two and a half, maybe three hours, I'm guessing. I'm not sure, moving at typical human walking pace. Depending on how many times they stopped him, they get to hear the story from beginning to end from the Lord Jesus himself. The greatest teacher with the greatest book telling them the greatest themes. And he's willing to spend a couple hours with them on Resurrection Sunday. Why? Because they have a lack of understanding. There is no place in their theology. There is no place in their theology for a crucified Messiah. Therefore, there is no place in their theology for a resurrected Messiah. They can't get beyond the crucifixion. As they read the Old Testament, they see the crown, but they don't see the cross. And it's not because they never read the Bible. It's not because they don't go to church. These are guys who hung out with Jesus. It's because they have a partial grasp of the Bible. Let me get very real with you right now. If you feel like you're not advancing in your walk with Christ, perhaps you look at this and say, Easter Sunday 2015, I don't feel any further along in my walk than I did in 2014. Maybe you're not spending enough time in God's Word. Maybe you're not delving into the things that God wrote. See, a partial understanding is dangerous. These individuals here have a partial understanding. I'm speculating. I'm thinking Jesus went all the way back to Genesis 3.15. I think he started right there because that's where God said to Adam and Eve, I know you messed up, but there's a deliverer coming one day. There's a Messiah. 
he will come and he will crush the head of the serpent. I think that's probably where he started, tracing it all the way through the Old Testament, taking them through theme after theme. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if he lingered when he got to the moment with Abraham where God made a covenant with Abraham. He said, Abraham, in you all the earth will be blessed. I don't know where he stopped at, what he concentrated on, but I want you to notice this. He doesn't only teach them doctrine. Verse 27 is very, very clear. He taught them things concerning himself. What would Jesus tell us about himself? I know this is where he would start, that God had to enter the human world, and he did it in the form of Jesus. I know that he helped them to understand The question of why Jesus had to suffer is absolutely answered in this Old Testament tour. It's not a series of events that have gone horribly wrong that have cascaded out of control. Jesus' death has to be understood as being ordained by God. So that means equally, Jesus' resurrection is a reality ordained by God. I'm going to help you to see that in the text right now. Jesus' death is not the end because the tomb is empty. Look at these words from Romans. Understanding how God values his word, look closely at this. Romans 4.25, he who was delivered over, meaning Jesus, given over to Rome, he was delivered over because of our transgressions. Transgressions is just a really big Bible word for sin because of the things that we did wrong. He was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Justification is another big Bible word, and it means forgiveness. He was raised for our forgiveness, church. See, the resurrection is the proof of God's acceptance that what Jesus offered was totally worthy. So the evidence of your justification is the empty tomb. If the tomb still has the body in it, you're destined for hell. You have no hope whatsoever. That's why Paul wrote, what a pitiful people we would be if Jesus wasn't resurrected. We would be putting all our hope in a man. But we're told here, Romans 4.25, he was raised because of our justification. See, the fact that Jesus was resurrected means one thing. It means the price has been paid. So it's true. Mark Kring's sin put him on the cross. Your sin did it as well. Our sin killed Jesus, but for our forgiveness, he was resurrected. So this morning, I want you to be fully present and totally hear this. Regardless of what's going on outside the walls, hear this. You, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you are forgiven. You are justified. I better get an amen out of that one. You are forgiven, church. Your sins passed your sins present, even your sins future. You are justified in Jesus, completely forgiven if you are a believer in him this morning. That's what that passage is saying. Let's jump back into the story and see how this ends. It goes on from verse 28, and they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. That means Jesus acted like he was going on further. I'm thinking if they didn't invite him in, He probably would have kept on going further, but you're certainly going to buy a pizza for somebody who's just been hanging out with you, right? Jesus just hung out with them for two and a half hours, so they're saying, come on, hang out with us. Come have supper with us. Come stay in our home. Watch this now. Verse 29. But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. 
So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Whoa, how cool is that? The moment, that moment that you recognize you're looking into the core of the nuclear reactor, and it's in your living room. The power source is right there in your house, the source of all eternal life, and boom, he's gone. They knew in that moment, but their hearts were burning prior to that moment. Watch how this unfolds. Verse 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scripture to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. Do you think they walked, church? Do you think they took their time? I'm thinking not. Now this is, this is evening time. In the Middle East, going out in the dark, going all the way back to Jerusalem, seven miles, as long as it took them to get there, pretty dangerous thing to do. A lot of robbers out in the countryside at that period of time. They're doing a dangerous thing, but they've got to run back. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Hear me, the story's coming to an end. It is the job. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to bring this story to life. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to bring this to reality for you. Some here right now are feeling that sense of electricity that these two are describing. You're feeling that sense of burning within you. God's word is becoming alive. It's precisely what you see these two responding to. The way, the way that they're responding, the reason that they're responding is because of this. Jesus has just helped them to understand God's word. He's taken them through the passage, Genesis all the way to Malachi. But the Holy Spirit steps in and illuminates it for them. The Holy Spirit has done the rest. So they say, we're not our hearts burning within us? See, even before they recognized Jesus, even before Jesus broke the bread, gave thanks to the Father, they're saying, even before that time, we began to recognize there's something going on here. See, the scripture is already at work. It's like fire. That's why Romans 10, 17 says, faith, that comes by hearing. And hearing comes by the word of God. If you're not spending enough time in God's word, church, your faith won't grow. It's not possible. God promises that your faith will be increased by spending time with him. Now, these individuals, the next time you see them, they've made their way back to Jerusalem. This is where the story ends, and they go busting through the door. It's true, it's true, it's true. The Lord is risen. Pick it up with me, verse 35. They began to relate, relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. How cool is that? You get the exact same story in the book of John where the disciples are locked behind the door and apparently these two were there and Jesus enters the room. They don't know how, he just came through the wall. Let's stop with the story and let's ask ourselves this question. Let's imagine for a moment that you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning. Let's imagine that you've never made a decision and you're a person trying to understand, how do I get a relationship with God? You understand you're guilty and you're helpless. Suppose just for a moment 
you want to be restored to God, what can you think of that ought to be done that hasn't already been done for you? Would you have God make a plan to rescue you? He did. Would you have God be the rescuer? He is. Would you have a guarantee? There is one. It's the empty tomb. That's why Scripture says it takes faith. It takes faith to believe in Jesus Christ that God raised him from the dead. Now, let's go one step further. You have absolutely no reason to believe you're not good enough. You come in here this morning and and you're wearing weight of sin on you. Perhaps you've never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. You might even be doubting in this moment whether or not what you're hearing is possible. Is it too good to be true? You might even be thinking, you don't know my past, Mark. You have no idea of my history. I, I do know this. I don't know your history, but this is what I do know. It's not about what you have done. It's about what He has done. It's about Jesus. That's why it's called grace. Regardless of your sin in your past, regardless of your sin even in your present, God will forgive you. There is forgiveness and a new beginning in Jesus. I stand here on the authority of God's word and tell you this. Sin is a wound that can be healed. You can know a brand new beginning, a brand new start. Everybody can. If you've learned anything this morning, it is this, that you have to take God at his word. That's what Jesus just did for these individuals saying, you missed it. Here it is in my word. Take me at my word. And then they got it. Then they understood God's word is true. It can be trusted. The Old Testament says the word of the Lord is tried and his promises are true. So if you're here this morning and you're ready to take God at his word, look at what his word says. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, finish it with me, you will be saved. What an amazing promise. That's what God promises. If you believe that Jesus is the Savior, that God raised him from the dead. Why? How is that possible? Because there is a transaction carried out on your behalf. This is the last verse. This is the transaction. It says this in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. God the Father agreed with God the Son who is absolutely sinless that he would become sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. How amazing, church. What a promise. I want you to know this is not automatic. Jesus died on the cross, true. He died for the sins of the world, true. But you have to accept it. You have to accept it for it to be a reality in your life. You have to make him Lord of your life. We gave you two things when you came in this morning. One is a little pamphlet. It says the hope of Easter. And the other thing is a little brochure that talks about new hope. On the bottom of that brochure is a little tear-off card. And you can put your name and address in there, but more importantly, what you can write in there is a prayer request. You want the prayer team at New Hope to pray for you over issues that are going on in your life? Write them out there. Slide them in the offering box when you leave this morning. We would be honored to pray for you. But if you're looking for a relationship with God, if these things have stimulated your senses this morning, take that little pamphlet that says the hope of Easter, read through it. It'll talk to you about how to have that relationship. This day, this day can be your day of hope. 
the one who is the source of all hope, hope, who says, I am, is offering a brand new beginning. Now, that, that's for you if you're not sure about where you're at with God this morning. But let me talk to you in church terms this morning. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we're about ready to close this service in exuberant singing, loud music. And I want you to know the reason why. You have a reason to cheer. You have a reason to rejoice. The things that God offers us transcends this world. It takes us into eternity. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. You know what that means for you? That means your resurrection is guaranteed one day. There ain't no grave that's going to hold you down. It's not possible. God resurrected Jesus as proof that you have been forgiven. So therefore, you will be resurrected one day. God's either going to call us to meet him in the air or he's going to resurrect you from the grave. So the foundation of all hope says, I am the resurrection. Let's praise God with that on our lips. Would you pray pray with me right now? Let's seal this in our heart. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that we've just heard. And we recognize it, that it is a thing worthy of being sealed in our heart. That regardless of the things that Satan says against us, and the accusations that come from others who say we're not worthy. You trump everyone, and you have said we are worthy. So we lift up our hearts to you right now. And we would ask that you would help us to remember this truth after dinner today, after the time when our relatives go home. Help us to remember it in the midst of a hard work week, in the midst of school, when we feel like we're being dragged down, Father, help us to remember that you have made us worthy, that you have given us forgiveness. And for that reason, we praise you and thank you and celebrate the fact that we have resurrection in Jesus Christ. Father, we recognize it by this word. All God's people say, Amen.